Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post-war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Beerstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org. In each episode of International History Declassified, Peter and I will sit down with historians to discuss their work and experiences researching in the field of international history. By examining their sources and methods, we hope to share with you the latest research being done on many different events, periods, and places that help shape our understanding of the world today. Hey, thanks for joining us on today's episode of International History Declassified. Today, we're delighted to welcome to the podcast, Michelle Paranzino who is an assistant professor in the Strategy and Policy Department at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. She also happens to be a former Kennan Institute scholar here at the Wilson Center. Michelle is the author of The Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War, A Short History with Documents, and she is currently working on a book about the war on drugs and Ronald Reagan. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm a huge fan of the Wilson Center and especially the Cold War International History Project I've used their materials just more times than I can count. So big fan. Cool, great. Well, uh, certainly uh, your your recent book uh, caught our attention. Uh, as myself, a bit of a Latin American uh, Cuban Missile Crisis uh, aficionado, uh, I, I, I leafed through it uh, very eagerly when it came out a couple years ago and, and just refreshed myself with it the other day. Um, but uh, I, we really kind of want to speak a bit about um, some of the, the topics you talked about in your recent blog post for us on, on sources and methods. Uh, where you describe some of your experience working in uh, the Russian archives and, and accessing a, a couple different collections on Soviet Latin American uh, relations through the Cold Years, uh, Cold War years, um, you talk a little bit about uh, exploring the the 1954 coup in Guatemala, the, the Cuban Revolution in '59, uh, Salvador Allende in, in Chile, um, in, in his uh, his his time down there, uh, and the Nicaraguan uh, Revolution in 1979. Um, can you just give us a very uh, a brief overview of what uh, different uh, periods of collections and, and other resources are available to researchers today in, in the Russian archives who are who are eager to study Latin American uh, Soviet relations yeah so um so I started at Ergani, the Russian State Archive of contemporary history and they um, they just reopened after moving so I would really encourage uh, people to go there because so when I was uh, when I was there in 2011 2012, the records of the international department of the central committee were only open, I think, to like 1955. Um, but they're open up to 1976, I believe now. So I would really encourage people to look at those records. I'm, I really want to get back there as soon as I can to look at those because those are, you know, really relevant to, to what I um, study. So then also in the State Archive of the Russian Federation, GARF, 
there there's not a lot there on latin america so the collection that i looked at there was the records of the soviet solidarity or the soviet committee for solidarity with the chilean democrats which was formed after allende's overthrow um i found i found some real treasures in that archive but then there's they also have the records of the um the APSO, the Afro-Asian uh, Solidarity Committee, which I didn't look at, but in retrospect, I would have, and I certainly will if I can go back to Moscow again. So, um, but really most of the documents that I looked at were in AVPRF, the, the Russian Foreign Policy Archive. There's just a, a ton of material there, all the way up into the early 90s which surprised me to honestly to find documents that recent but um i mean like i said in the blog post i had you know i had sent the, my research proposal ahead of time and even even having narrowed it down to those sort of those sort of like four you know pivotal developments in the cold war even having having narrowed it down to that the archivist was like no you'll drown <laughs> you'll drown in paper um so yeah there's there's just a ton of stuff there um that's pretty surprising to hear because when you think cuban missile crisis you know it's something that's been obviously studied for a long time um i know uh we talked to sam wells earlier about sort of the the opening of the russian archives and kind of the flood of documents that came in but that's you know 20 30 years ago at this point um i'm surprised to hear that there's so much that's sort of kind of new um can you go into a little bit about um, why you think that might be and um, sort of what you've been finding that that um, kind of hasn't been just kind of covered and covered and covered? Yeah. So so from my point of view, um, so I am trained technically as like a U.S. foreign policy person. So I studied U.S. history. Um, but then, you know, so I'm somebody who sits my work sits at the intersection of like U.S. foreign policy soviet history and latin american history and i think those those three fields um have very different um agendas i think and and research questions that they're interested in so i think for u.s foreign policy people for a long time they saw the cuban missile crisis as the totality of soviet ambitions in the western hemisphere during the cold war and so that was sort of the incident in Soviet Latin American relations that was studied more than any other question. And I think, I just think that US foreign policy people for too long have been um, really focused on just the defense and sort of military aspects of, of, so, of the Soviets in Latin America. And so the Cuban Missile Crisis was what interested them when you know, in reality, the Soviet Union has had diplomatic relations with Latin American countries since, you know, long before the Cold War started. Um, and so I think that's why there hasn't been that much interest from U.S. foreign policy scholars in looking at the records of AVPRF, because they're more interested in, you know, well, what exact, um, you know, dollar amount of <laughs> weapons was, were the Soviets providing with the Cubans or the Nicaraguans or, you know, Chile under Allende? And to me, that those aren't the most interesting questions. And I think U.S. foreign policy people for a long time have sort of viewed, have viewed influence as a one-way street where even, you know, I, I mentioned this in the blog post about how diplomatic history has been rebranded as like the United States in the world, 
which I feel like is a problematic designator for a number of reasons. But one of those is I think, I think the preposition in tends to connote one way influence. And um, so the perspectives that tend to be privileged in that field tend to still be the stories and views of US actors rather than having say, you know, the Soviet Committee for Solidarity with the Chilean Democrats and kind of look at the influence that that had on, like one of the things that I found in doing this research in Russia was that, you know, Latin American communists and progressives and Soviet sympathizers exerted just as much influence on the Soviets as the Soviets did on them. Hmm. And, um, but I think that, that U.S. foreign policy people are sort of still very much privileging the U.S. perspective. And so I think a lot of that, the influence that is exerted upon the United States or upon the Soviet Union by, by what we think of as, you know, quote unquote, third world actors tends to be marginalized or ignored. Sure. Uh, I, th I think that's absolutely fair. And, and, you know, frankly, you know, we've, we've often viewed the, the Cold War in Latin America through a pretty bipolar lens, uh, looking at the, at the implications for the U.S. and for the Soviet Union, um, and looking often through the documents of the U.S. and of, and of the Soviet Union, uh, the former Soviet Union. Um, but I just want to, you know, explore if, if you've, uh, you know, had a chance to, to look at resources from Latin American archives, um, uh, and if you perhaps could talk a little bit about uh, how you think that those can help paint a fuller picture and then sort of give a more complementary uh, you know, collection of records and and uh, and and, um, and history for, for for other researchers. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's certainly you know wealth of of materials to be had in various Latin American archives. The one, so the the um. The Acervo Genaro Estrada in Mexico City, um, the records of the of the Mexican Foreign Ministry, um, it's they're amazing. I would really highly recommend anyone studying Cold War Latin America, even if even if you're not focused on Mexico. Like you know, I wasn't my research interests weren't specifically about Mexico, but because Mexico. Mexico was the only country in Latin America that maintained relations with both the Soviet Union and Cuba throughout the entire period of the Cold War. So for that reason alone, I, I would really encourage people to go there and look at what they have. That's interesting. So you can sort of use them as a, as a way to triangulate both, uh, both Cuban policy and, and as, well as, as well as Soviet policy and, and see how, uh, how perhaps um, they differed and... Uh, and what was going on? That's that's really fascinating. I, I I would love to check out those resources at some point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you definitely should. Um, there's there's a lot to be had there. Um, I I've also done work in the archives of um, in the Dominican Republic, and that was that was wonderful. I mean, the archivists there are just they're so they're so wonderful. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed working there. So I was looking for that. I was looking, I was trying to look for things related to the 1965 U.S. invasion sure. of the Dominican Republic. So it was, you know, the largest overt U.S. military invasion of any Latin American country in the Cold War. Um, and, and I did find a lot of really interesting materials pertaining to 
um, the sort of like leftist and Marxist guerrilla yeah, groups sure. in the public at the time. Um, so yeah, there's, and they actually have a ton of stuff online. They have a lot of uh, digitized materials in their collections online. So I would encourage people to look at those. That's as very well. cool. Just just as a quick aside here, we uh, we uh, had an earlier podcast get, uh, guest on. This episode hasn't come out yet, but uh, Renee Cordero is a, is a PhD student up at Brown University who's done a lot of work in in, in the Dominican archives. Uh, is also running their um, basically a, a archival capture project. They're using um, uh, NARA resources, NARA old State Department cables and, and stuff. They're digitizing those, describing them and, and making them available. So it's, it's another, I've, I've learned a lot about the uh, the Dominican archives in the last couple of weeks. And, and now I'm really curious about them. They <laughs> yeah. sound great. They sound really cool uh, from, from two strong endorsements here. So yeah, so, I'm sorry. That was just an aside. Kian, I'll let you get back to the actual questions. <laughs> no, I, actually, my question is along those lines. I mean, how how does researching in places like the Dominican Republic and Mexico City compare to working in, say, Moscow or St. Petersburg or or um, even Western Europe? Yeah, so I would say um, one noticeable difference is, I mean, just the helpfulness of the archivists in Mexico and um, in Santo Domingo. I felt like so. You know, in in Russia, you get a lot of side eye for your, you know, grammatical errors and stuff. And I like to think my pronunciation is is pretty good, but um, you not know, good the, enough. The, apparently, the archivists, <laughs> yeah, it would never be good enough. Yeah. Um, but frankly, the archivists at the archives in Latin America that I went to were a lot more forgiving. <laughs> of my non-native speaker status. And one other difference that I found interesting that I wouldn't have anticipated and that frankly, if I was giving someone advice, I would tell them about, you know, the issue of, of, of bringing gifts for archivists, hmm. because it's, it's a really important cultural difference that exists between Russia. And at least, you know, when I, at least in, um, in Mexico and in the Dominican Republic. Um, so I remember I had been at AVPRF. I had been I had been trying to get access for a while because um, they, they kind of give you the runaround a little bit when you first show up and you have to be very persistent and just keep showing <laughs> up day after day. Um, and then I remember talking to somebody and, and they said like, oh, well, I mean, have you brought them like, you know, tea and chocolates or something? <laughs> mm. I was like, well, no, I hadn't, you know, that, that thought really hadn't crossed my mind. Um, but I swear to you the next time that I showed up and I brought some pastries um, in a box and I swear noticed that my access to the documents was eased by the <laughs> presentation of gifts. Um, whereas in Latin America, those can sometimes be interpreted as bribes. Okay. And they're very like, so when I showed up with a gift for, cause it was my last day and just, you know, one of the women at the archives in Santo Domingo had just been such a sweetheart to me and had, you know, engaged me in conversation. And I, you know, um, I wanted to, to give her just a little token of appreciation. And um, she was very like, oh, you know, I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed <laughs> to accept this. And then I felt bad, like, you know, that I had 
compromise oh, for no. integrity <laughs> or something like that. So, you know, just a sort of important cultural difference to be aware yeah. of. Yeah, it's really it's really funny how, you know, you kind of um, there's this kind of um, trope of the the archivists as like the gatekeepers to the archives and, and to the documents. And uh, but if you're going every single day, you really start to develop relationships with them. And it's interesting how each kind of country and even each archive has their own, um, you know, their own culture, their own kind of um, um, almost quirks even. And, and, you know, what works in one archive doesn't necessarily work on the other archive. And even between archivists, you know, um, like the one archivist you want to give gifts to, the other one you definitely don't because, you know, she might get offended. But it's, it's really cool kind of the differences. Yeah. And when, yeah, when you work at an archive for a length of, of time like that, you do kind of start to get to know them and, mm -hmm. and the differences between them. And, and it can really be, you know, another window onto a culture that you, you know, wouldn't have necessarily had otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and you were mentioning uh, uh, some efforts to, to digitize uh, in, in these Latin American countries, uh, archives. Is that something that you're, you're seeing uh, increasingly? Um, we know it's, it's, it's something that's happening a bit more with, uh, with Russian sources. Uh, but, you know, obviously, we, we, Operate and run the, the the digital archive, which is a, a massive repository of, of uh, freely accessible documents. So um, we're we're quite you know we're fans of digitization and and, and advocates of, of making documents available online. Uh, is is that a trend you're you're seeing or, or want to encourage? Yeah, I mean it's definitely a trend that that I'm seeing and would want to encourage. Um, so yeah, I was really impressed by the amount of material that that the that the archive in uh, Santo Domingo has already digitized. Um, honestly, I, I guess I'm kind of glad that I didn't know that before I went because <laughs> I might not have, have actually gone and spent the time there, but I'm so glad that I did. I think we, we have to find a balance between, you know, wanting to have uh, enough materials available online that it's useful, but not so many that we, we still won't be able to make the trips to, to spend times in the archives and actually physically go there and, and do the research. It's, a, I think, a, a delicate balance we need to find. <laughs> Yeah, ex exactly. Especially when you're going to foreign archives, because there's something that, that the experience of just being in that country day after day and, um, you know, seeing the way that people live and just walking around the city and, you know, it just it's that sort of experience that you can't get just from reading documents in a digital library. And it does, I think, give you more of a feel for a place and give you more of an appreciation for the events that occurred there. Sure. I'm seeing like, so, you know, I'm working a lot with Reagan library materials right now. And I feel really lucky that, well, I've spent a lot of time at the Reagan library because I'm from Southern California and I did my master's degree in history at Cal State Northridge. So, um, you know, I, the, honestly, I did a terminal master's because I didn't think that I was going to do a PhD. Um, but it was the experience of going to the Reagan library for the first time to do research and just looking at documents that he had, that he had looked at, that he had written in the margins of, right, um, right. I just totally fell in love with that and was like, wait, I could make a career out of this. <laughs> um, and, and the Reagan library is, they're, I think they're kind of leading the way with digitization, mm -hmm. um, at least among the presidential libraries that I've seen. The, the head archivist that I talked to last time, his name was Ray Wilson, who was telling me that really that's, that's the wave of the future for them.
that they're really focused on digitization, which is good because the Reagan Library is another place where I feel like I've heard U.S. foreign policy scholars say like, oh, well, you know, it's so recent. What can you even really get there? Oh, <laughs> uh, like, yeah, I disagree. A, a lot. <laughs> yeah, a lot. there's so much there. It's a really good, it's a really good library. There, there's a lot of materials. And like you said, it's it's very kind of lively. I mean, like a lot of the the kind of like action in the documents is really interesting. I know there's some um, one document um, that I was working on on another project where um, Reagan is is kind of given the order that um, essentially if any of the hostages that were taken in Lebanon are hurt um, and, and you hear the description, uh, he says, I want us getting back at them like that. And he snaps his fingers. And it's just it's so vivid. It's so it's so real, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's really cool. And and, um, and it's, of course, all the more relevant because of how recent it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're we're still, you know, experiencing the legacies of of Reagan, domestic and foreign policy in a in a profound way. Absolutely. Um, not to take us away from from that conversation, <laughs> but um, a, a slight transition from you know your work in the archives to your work as uh, kind of teaching at the Naval War College. Um, what's it been like teaching, you know, America's military officers? Um, do they have, like, um, Pete and I were talking about this. Um, we find that they actually have a, a pretty, pretty strong, uh, pretty deep understanding of history and its value, um, maybe even more so than their diplomatic counterparts. Do you find that to be the case? Um, what was your experience been in, in teaching um, at the college? Yeah, so I've had a, I've had a great experience and the students, um, yeah, overwhelmingly are so. So at the Naval War College, the students who come to us are, you know, they're they're mid career or even later career. This is kind of it's like the grad school. Mm-hmm. So all of our students have, uh, they all have undergraduate degrees, and many of them have advanced degrees. Some of them actually even have PhDs, <laughs> um, which is definitely you know, was, I have to admit that, um, you know, I had heard the phrase like imposter syndrome kind of being thrown around a lot by my friends in grad school and and stuff like that. And to be honest, I never really related to that until I arrived here (laughs) (laughs) Um, because I'm not a military historian. You know, I, I didn't study military history. Like I studied diplomatic history and to be honest, when I first got here and the first time I taught, I wasn't really sure what my role was because in my department, we teach with, uh, we have military teaching partners. So in our seminar at in all times, you know, it's a civilian PhD along with, you know, an active duty military officer. And so I didn't, it, I think it took me a while to understand that, that, you know, actually my contribution is everything that I thought I was lacking hmm. is, is actually my strength that I don't come to it from this like military history perspective where everything's about like, you know, the order of battle and how many tanks are over here and how many tanks, you know, and I don't do that. Um, and, and that's actually my strength, not my weakness. Sure. Yeah. And, and just like you weren't interested necessarily in, in the dollar, dollar amounts of, of, uh, of arms funds that were going to Latin America, perhaps the, uh, the those uh, less, uh, less interesting and, 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 you know, numbers without depth or context or orders of battle are, are not really what, what gets our, our historical uh, engines going. Um, but I, I do, I, it's really interesting the way that that is, that is structured to have both 
both the civilian and then also uh, military um, uh, instruction going on in the class. That, that, I think it's a really unique uh, unique way of, of doing it. But also, I think it, it, it just lends itself to uh, the larger question that, that we here uh, at the Wilson Center, obviously, we're part of the history and public policy program. Um, we're always interested in, in the ways that, that history does intersect and, and um, affect policymaking, whether that be uh, diplomacy or, or, or military policy. Um, it's it's uh, it's 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 always interesting to see how history is used, and um, I, I'm encouraged to hear that uh, that you've had a, a positive experience uh, with some of these these students that you're, they're, that you're teaching. Yeah, definitely. So in my, in my department, we always say like we don't teach history; we teach strategy. But we use historical case studies, and the thing that I always try to impress upon my students is that you can't understand the thinking of strategic leaders. You cannot understand the strategic options that are available to them if you don't understand the ideology in which these decisions are made. And in order to understand that, you really have to have a good understanding of history. So, you know, any attempt to sort of like divorce the historical context from, you know, these timeless strategic principles. I think, yeah, you can do that to a certain extent. You can say certain strategic principles are timeless, but in order to really understand the way that those have played out in the past, you need to have a good grasp. So um, now going back into the archives, because I think this is sort of related, um, How's your work in the Latin American archives, which again, you know, is, is sort of an area that's a little bit understudied, is certainly relative to Russia and, and Europe and the U.S. in particular. Um, do you find that you're getting that perspective more from actually being able to work in, you know, Mexico City and the DR and in, in, uh, Chile and other places? Oh, definitely. It has been, I mean, yeah, it's really been eye-opening to compare you know, what Latin American diplomats are saying about what the Soviet Union was doing versus like what, you know, U.S. policymakers are saying. Guessing. Um, at... <laughs> yeah. And especially Mexico, because, um, you know, Mexican diplomats, I, I think they are just so skilled at, um, at, at kind of, you know, playing all the different sides and being really just kind of having their eyes open to all of the different sort of policy goals and agendas of all the different players. Like, I, I just think they're very, um, they're very shrewd in a way that, you know, U.S. diplomats, I don't think had to be just by virtue of sort of being the great power. You, um, I think that that sort of hubris uh, really, you know, even influenced, uh, American diplomacy. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really hoping to do more research in Latin American archives, particularly Chile, mm. um, because the Chile under Allende, I mean, they, you know, those, those records are fully declassified. Um, that's my understanding. And, you know, another country that I wouldn't have thought going into this project that I would um, really be looking at is Uruguay. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, Uruguay is sometimes seen as like the, the Switzerland of South America, but of course, you know, in the seventies with the dirty wars or, you know, the Uruguayan uh, military dictatorship was, you know, you know, 
locking people up and detaining people and torturing people and you know it was very much part of that the operation condor that the transnational sort of terror against the marxist left but prior to that um my sense from looking at um latin american documents and russian documents is that uruguay was um was sort of seen as this transit point where like they didn't want to make like because the Uruguayan regimes tended to be you know somewhat neutral and to maintain relations with the Soviet Union the Soviets didn't want to jeopardize that by really um you know promoting armed uh or irregular warfare in Uruguay um because they they did want to kind of keep it neutral as a place you know for where sort of diplomats could pass through and they could get you know passports and um, they could obtain other types of assistance from Uruguay. Um, so that would be a place that I would really like to go and do some research. That sounds fascinating. Uh, yeah, that really, really, really would be cool. Um, absolutely. Um, I'm going to uh, switch to the the final final question here, which is the one that we that we warned you about um, yesterday. Uh, it's something that we like to ask all of our guests, uh, and um, you know, sometimes uh, I, I think it's an interesting question. Um, but but I'm glad that we sort of gave you a heads up this time, so so as not to sort of spring it yeah, on you. <laughs> yeah, it's funny though because I did immediately know what my answer. Oh, was all right be. then. Well, well, I'll go ahead and ask then. Uh, so, is there <laughs> is there something that you've discovered in your research, a document, a photograph, uh, an oral history interview that shifted your understanding of a particular event or or period of history? Uh, something that sort of made you when you read it or saw it thought, huh? I didn't I didn't really think th- this way, but but perhaps now uh, now my my perspective has changed. Yeah, definitely. So it was it was one of my first vis- visits to Ergani, um, the Russia, the State Archive of Contemporary History in Moscow, and it was a report from these uh, representatives of the World Federation of Trade Unions about the situation in Guatemala leading up to the coup that overthrew Arbenz, and the report. So. You're probably familiar with the book Bitter Fruit. About it, it's the it's the most popular narrative of the 1954 coup in Guatemala, and it's um, the the report from the World Federation of Trade Union Unions read exactly like the argument of Bitter Fruit. It's essentially the economic imperialism argument. So I was. You know, I was sitting there scrolling through the microfilm in Ergani, reading this report, going like, this reads just like the introduction of Bitter Fruit. How could it be? How could it be that the most popular narrative of the 1954 coup is essentially the communist, the Soviet Communist Party line? (laughs) Um, And I was stunned by that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, I think it speaks to just the penchant of American audiences. And I mean, when I mean, when I say American, I mean, specifically us to want a sort of simplified narrative that attributes everything to a single cause, because, you know, there's certainly a lot to recommend the economic imperialism argument, particularly when we look at the United States and its behavior in Central America. 
you know, no doubt. But there are other factors involved as well. Um, you know, the, the, this is not a monocausal explanation of the U.S. relationship with Central America. And um, I just, I think it's really interesting that this continues to be the most, the sort of dominant narrative is one that is, is pretty much lines up with the Communist Party line. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. It's it's weird, um, you know. We 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 talk um, with with this question with other with other scholars, and again, the the question of smoking gun kind of always comes up, and whether there's clear evidence of certain line of thinking or intentionality or whatever. But it is like always strange when when the assumptions turn out to be true, <laughs> right? When when you're kind of like, oh, that's sort of what we thought, huh? Weird. Okay, I was kind of waiting for this big revelation and find out that everything was wrong, but no, this is pretty much what what uh, what the line of thinking was. Yeah, um, and it's just it's it's tough to try to um, to try to get at like. Um, the directionality of influence mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you know because the U because the U.S. relationship with so much of Latin America, but again, especially Central America and the Caribbean, um, you know, it it does. There is so much evidence there for the economic imperialism argument um, that I think sometimes it's just it's hard to see past that, um, but. Uh, Maybe there's good reason for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm kind of like losing the thread of where I was going with this because I feel like I had um, more to say about that. But, but really, um, it's, it is tough to say that, you know, it's like who, who is creating this narrative? Well, a lot of it is... Um, is Latin American communists and like trade unionists on the ground, but they're of course, you know, already shaped and influenced by Bolshevik ideology because of course, you know, um, Comintern has been around for some time, you know, decades before the Cold War starts. Mm -hmm. So I think for US foreign policy scholars, looking at the cold war it's easy to kind of um think that that you know soviet influence in latin america is is a a cold war phenomenon when it really predates the cold war by decades and latin americans themselves are shaping the priorities of comintern through you know membership and participation um and you know i, I think that for too long, U.S. foreign policy scholars have, have just kind of dismissed Comintern or, you know, the Communist parties of, of other countries as, you know, Moscow's like Trojan horses. And it, I think that really does a disservice to, to the people who participated and who, you know, frankly, were sometimes pursuing goals and agendas that were not the same as their Soviet counterparts and who did what they could within the framework of an organization where obviously Moscow is seeking to, you know, dominate to the degree that they can. But that, that doesn't mean that, that there's no flexibility and agency and sort of scope for 
um, for people to, to kind of pursue different agendas under the same framework. Absolutely. I think, I think that's, I think you've completely hit the nail on the head on, on sort of why it's important to get these local perspectives because otherwise they lose all agency and there's no, there's no sort of appreciation for the, the thought process and the reasoning people um, and especially, you know, leaders who, who might be either neither East nor West or, or slightly more East or whatever can easily be just sort of written off as communist pawns or, or whatever. But uh, there's a lot going on underneath and there's a lot of kind of, you know, domestic and internal issues that people are trying to work through. Uh, and you just can't appreciate that when you have great powers who are looking from the outside in with their own kind of biases and perspectives and all that. If you actually can get your hands on the thinking of the people involved in these decisions, you can kind of appreciate where they're coming from a lot better. Yeah, and, and it's only, you know, because the lens has been zoomed so closely on the US-Soviet relationship for so long, it's like when you back off of that and refocus on like intra-communist bloc conflict and, and confrontation and cooperation and competition, that you, that's when you see all of these little, you know, shades of difference in policy goals and agendas just won't be if you're just focusing on the U.S. and the Soviets and kind of just, just implicitly treating the Soviet bloc as a monolith. Right. Which was a huge problem <laughs> for us in policy making and stuff. And it, it continues to be, it, it continues to shape the historical scholarship through um, the sorts of research questions that scholars ask, which, you know, are still kind of, I think, overly influenced by the views of U.S. policymakers, um, you know, who, who developed the policy and who sort of developed the, the kind of like first draft of of history. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think, I think one interesting way to, and you know, not to, to beat a dead horse here, because I do think it has been overused as an example. And uh, some would perhaps say overstudied, but the Cuban missile crisis is a really, is a really interesting sort of case study about that um, in that it, it, you know, for, for the many initial decades after it happened was written from a completely U S based perspective based on, on U S um, sources and, 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 uh, and, and evidence and writings. And then in 1990, as as the Cold War ended and and Russian archives began to open up to Western researchers, including some of the first uh, uh, forays into them from from our colleagues here at the Wilson Center, um, you got to see the 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 Russian perspective. Maybe let's see, it was probably about two uh, early 2000s um, when the the 40th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis went on, and there was the the big uh, uh, critical oral history conference down in Havana. Uh, when you actually got to see some of the the Cuban uh, records come out, it was a big push to to make some of those available. And I know certain researchers like Piero Glejesis has have, have done great work down in 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 the archives in Havana. But I sort of see it as as a couple of stages here, as as the history, as the resources, as the uh, sources become available, the the documentation becomes available. You're able to paint a a broader and fuller and more complete picture of the crisis and uh, of it as, as 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 it goes on. So hopefully a similar trend will will be uh, experienced with not just the Cuban Missile Crisis, but all of Latin American uh, Cold War history. We, we've we've had a very sort of singular or, or um, bipolar perspective on it for a while, and and now I think that um, with the great research that that you and some of uh, some of the other researchers are, are doing in, in those archives these days, we're 
we're really uh, growing and 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 improving the field and and improving the the history and our, our scholarship of it. So I'm I'm enthused to see that trend. And yeah, definitely same here. And um, you know, there there's a lot to be said about that. But but one thing I would say is that you know, for a long time, it seemed like U.S. scholars of the Cuban Missile Crisis would attribute, you know, every motivation to Khrushchev for providing the missiles, except for the one that Khrushchev <laughs> himself said, which was that, um, you know, that he wanted to protect the Cuban revolution from U.S. aggression, which was, you know, after the Bay of Pigs invasion was undeniable. So, you know, did Khrushchev have other motivations? Yes, surely he did. But the idea that you would, you know, that, that, that you would simply write off the one that he gives as his main motivation, I think, you know, is, is odd. There was an odd reluctance among U.S. scholars to sort of take Khrushchev at his word and, and to believe that he did have an interest in protecting the Cuban revolution. You know, you asked about, you know, documents or photos, like one photo that I, I really remember shaping sort of my understanding of, of the Soviet-Cuban relationship is, you know, the famous photo of, of Castro and Khrushchev, like sort of hugging yep. <laughs> outside. It, it was the 1960 UN General Assembly when it became this photo op because, um, uh, Castro, I think, a member of his delegation was denied a hotel room because he was black. So they like went to Harlem and then that's where that photo op happened. Um, but if you look at the photo, I mean, the, the genuine like warmth and sincerity of these two leaders really comes across. This, you know, it, it does not come across like some sort of staged photo op the warmth between them is palpable i mean you can feel it looking at the photo and so the idea that you know i mean khrushchev was just as much influenced by castro mm -hmm. as you know castro was by the soviets um and and i think that's really palpable in that photo yeah. and i think there's a just still an odd reluctance among scholars of u.s foreign policy to acknowledge that I, I couldn't agree more. And, and that photo really is, it's a, it's a, it comes right to mind. It's, it's iconic. And, and just the, the way that those two, I mean, two, two figures who have tremendous charisma, um, sort of embracing and, and being human and, and, and you can, you can, you can see the emotion in, in that shot. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a, it's a great one. I, I find, I find, um, photographs are, are great, um, inroad to history and, and give you a, a, a slightly different perspective perhaps than, than uh, just words on a paper uh, piece of paper would. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a fascinating conversation. I really uh, enjoyed uh, the, the ins and outs of it. And, uh, and thank you for taking the time to, to speak with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Join us for our next episode, which features a conversation with University of Glasgow's Rebecca Whiting about conflict records. As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music. You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. 
International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.